Welcome to Saving the Game. This is Episode 4, Avarice, Part 1 of our Virtues and Vices series, recorded Wednesday, August 1st of 2012, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, and Brandon. Welcome to Saving the Game. My name is Grant. My name is Peter. And I'm Brandon. Wait, what? Yep, we've got a third host. It's amazing. Awesome. So, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Also, listeners, uh, just as a quick side note, this is the same Brandon that was helping us that we referenced in a previous episode. Yeah. And, and I just want to say, like, the f- as soon as I heard that, like, I, I know these guys from the Fear the Boot forums, which is an awesome place, and I'm probably going to plug that a billion times. Not that it really needs plugging, but That's if you're okay, new we here... Do too. Yeah, because we don't plug it every episode. Oh, no. All right. If, if you're new here and you're wondering more about role-playing games, it's a great resource to go to. They're really great guys. It's, it's one of the nicest communities on the internet. I am not a very social person, really, and this is a place where I have kind of found my niche. And I've met these two wonderful people, and they said that they were doing a podcast about role-playing games and Christianity, and role-play is one of my most favorite hobbies, and I am a really devout Christian, and I've spent my life working on that, and so this is, I'm like, this is something I want to be involved with, so I, I, I promised them I would do anything, and now they have me doing slave labor, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit of editing and hosting. <laughs> if you've ever done editing, then you definitely know it's slave labor. Well, yeah. the, the show notes are not exactly uh, a walk in the park either, let me tell you. Okay, true. Yep. Of course, I'm a little OCD about our show notes, so... Brandon, thank you for being on the show. If you don't mind, tell everybody about yourself real quick. All right, well, I'm uh, 26. I like candlelight dinners and long walks on the beach. Oh, wait, this is not that thing. Um, My mom was a Seventh-day Adventist who raised me to be Seventh-day Adventist, so I've been Christian my entire life, and my dad was Catholic until he went to Catholic school and the nuns beat it out of him. As happens. Yes. Um, My mom really raised me in my whole religious thing and guided me in the way that I should go, and taught me that role-playing games were evil and all this other stuff like that. Oddly enough, I actually grew up believing that Dungeons & Dragons was going to lead me into doing dark and satanic rituals because... My mom was taught to believe that. My first role-playing game I ever encountered was Star Wars, because me and a couple other church friends were really into Star Wars. And we found the old West End D6 Star Wars game, and we never actually played it, but we looked at the the books. the system on that was terrible. I liked it. Yeah. Listen, everybody likes their first system. (laughs) I have a friend who swears he enjoys riffs. (laughs) Oh, jeez. I'm trying not to say anything incendiary yet, as it's, like, only two minutes into this podcast. Well, you shouldn't, because Kevin Zimbaito will sue us. <laughs> yeah. It took me forever to get into Dungeons & Dragons, and I actually got into Dungeons & Dragons after I failed out of uh, Christian College, and I came back home to live with my parents, and I started working at Weiss as a cart boy, and there was a Mormon who was a door security guard who I got talking to and turned out that we both liked role-playing because I was doing online role-playing and typing back and forth to people at the time. And he mentioned Dungeons and & Dragons and I got all scared. And then it turned, it realized that, oh, it's not evil, like I said. I still had to hide it from my parents because my mom thought it was evil. And I still remember the night where, like, one night she pounded on my door and, she, you know, I, I was like, what? what? What's going on? She's like, Brandon, I have to talk to you about something. Are you playing Dungeons & Dragons? And the only thing that went through my mind was, oh no, she found the books. She found all the books. I'm, I'm dead. And instead, she pulls out my dice pouch that had the words Dungeons & Dragons on it. And I'm like, oh no, I, I just picked that up in like the, uh, what's it called, uh, in the parking lot where I work. Oh no. And so like, I, I, I played it off. I got off cool. So yeah, I, I was raised pretty strict on role-playing games, but now I'm a huge role-playing gamer and so how did that ultimately work out i mean have you managed to convince your parents or is it something that is still kind of off the table to discuss with them um i i've recently it's because i'm currently living away at college again uh this is actually my last semester away and i'm in an apartment and so i've i've been more open to be able to discuss 
my beliefs in role-playing games and how I don't think that they're evil to my mom. My mom is a person who is a very special case. She, she, she enjoyed the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, but she didn't like the second one because it was too, you know, had too many monsters in it. And I kind of reminded her mom, there were undead people in the first one. She's like, oh yeah, but they only came out in the moonlight, so it could have been a trick of the light. But yeah, uh, recently I, I was able to talk to her about it, and I basically said, yeah, I've, I've played Dungeons and Dragons. It's not evil. It's just telling stories. And she accepted it because she's slowly starting to realize things also. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, my folks have got have mellowed a lot on the speculative fiction stuff. I think... I think my dad was always a little bit into it. Uh, he read a lot of Christian authors like C.S. Lewis and um, Stephen Lawhead, who incorporated fantastic elements into allegorical Christian tales. And I think he probably has convinced my mom that that stuff really is okay. And I, I, he, he got her to watch Lord of the Rings, so that's... Yeah. That is a success. Yeah, that is. I've been trading science fiction books with my dad and fantasy books with my mom and dad since I was like six or seven so it, it's odd because I don't know if it's, it's really been so much fantasy like my mom while she doesn't play fantasy or like it I grew up kind of reading the Harry Potter uh, stuff that came out you just made me feel so old for the record <laughs> yeah same here that stuff came out when I was in college I was al- yeah I was already an adult in the workforce when that stuff came out okay I, I, I'm yet to be an adult in the workforce old. So. Excuse me, I need to find my cane. (laughs) Well, that's why you've brought me on here, to skew to the younger, hipper, you know, generation. Weren't we just talking about how you were a hipster? (laughs) Yes, we were. And and now he has just confirmed it, yes. Right before we... (laughs) Hey, Aaron Stack, if uh, you're listening to this, he has admitted to being a hipster. He's a hipster. He's totally a hipster. Hipster! Okay, so hazing the new guy being done. (laughs) The new hipster. (laughs) Oh, man. So real quick, before we get into our our main topic, I wanted to also give a shout-out to six people. Tyler, Patrick, Bobby, Danny, Don, Jesse, and Chrissy. Those people, including myself, we just wrapped up our four-and-a-half-year-long mage game. About a week ago, we wrapped up that uh, that mage game, and I just gotta say, Tyler, thank you for running an awesome game. Everybody else, thank you for playing an awesome game, because that was one of the best campaigns I've played in a very long time, maybe ever. And oh my goodness, it was a lot of work, because that's a lot of players and a lot of stuff to juggle. Yeah, and you said it ran for four years? Four and a half. Understand, the... that's the prologue for the campaign. Ah, this is probably longer than most relationships I've had. I'm pretty sure the campaign lasts longer than most marriages in the United States, but, Yeah, you know. not mine. I just celebrated my eighth anniversary. My marriage has already lasted twice as long as your campaign did. Good on you, sir. <laughs> I was definitely not the only person contributing to the quality of that relationship. Yeah, that does help. But yeah, we um we just wrapped that up, and it's, it's an awesome campaign. They're continuing on with Act 2 kind of the, the first act, if you will, or the next piece of it without me. They're going from Mage the Ascension to a New World of Darkness vampire game. And vampire's not my cup of tea, and as I've said before and many times, I've got a kid on the way, and I'm doing this podcast, and I want to start GMing games, so my time as a player in that game is somewhat limited. So they're going on without me, but I'm going to continue to hear from them, because all those people are basically my best friends in real life. And so it's really nice to have them around and hear them talking about the game. But I just wanted to give them a shout-out and a thank you because it's been fantastic. Thank you, guys. Oh, very cool. So let's go ahead and get into our main topic here. Uh, Before we do our scripture, I kind of want to tell people what we're doing. This was something that Grant and I discussed when we were still talking about doing the podcast before we had even recorded a single episode. There are seven deadly sins and seven corresponding heavenly virtues, and... We conceived of doing a 14-episode series, spaced out amongst our other stuff, of alternating back and forth between one of the seven deadly sins and then the corresponding virtue that goes with it. So tonight we're going to be kicking that off. The first one that we're going to be doing is Avarice, also known as Greed. And then our next episode will focus on Charity, its corresponding flip side virtue. Do we want to 
talk about the origins of the Seven Deadly Sins before we get into this, because the Seven Deadly Sins actually do have a somewhat interesting origin. Uh, yeah, if you've got that ready to go, go for it. I was watching the History Channel uh, a while ago, and they had something on the Seven Deadly Sins, and that's always been something that has been an interest to me, because I am not Catholic, and the Seven Deadly Sins are very much a Catholic institution. Sure. Although, if um, if you've read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, or actually, if you haven't read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and are curious about the Seven Deadly Sins, he goes into those, and really more into the Seven Heavenly Virtues in pretty good detail in there. Uh, it's a good lay introduction to that concept. Also, one of my favorite uh, teaching pastors, Adam Hamilton of the uh, Church of the Resurrection in Leawood, Kansas, preached a sermon series on the seven deadly sins a few years back that was excellent. The one thing that I had seen from this History Channel little coverage on the seven deadly sins was that they actually first came from a Greek monk. His name was apparently Evagarius Ponticus. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but he actually listed eight what he called evil thoughts, which were just things that um, uh, were his own personal impedances to a divine life. Uh, The things that he thought were kind of holding him back, they weren't necessarily sins, but they were things that would easily distract him and what he thought would be most people in general. Of course, then um, a pope, uh, Pope Gregory I, came around and revised these and gave them what I feel is maybe a little bit of a bad nomenclature of the seven deadly sins, because all sins are deadly. These are just uh, things that tend to lead to sin if you See, go too much. that's where you and I differ a lot. The seven deadly sins, most notably pride, are basically root sins of thought and deed and theological bent, which are in and of themselves sinful. These are kind of the uh, wicked motivators that humans suffer from. Yes. Um, If if you're going to do something bad, chances are the roots of that bad action, that, that sinful conduct, are going to be drawing their kind of poisonous nourishment from one of these seven wells of evil in the human soul. It's not an action. It's how your mind and soul are relating to God at that moment and over the course of your life. It's things that impede your relationship with God and interfere with that. Whereas, you know, if I'm feeling greedy, what I'm doing in that case is not thinking of... Anything but your desire for more wealth. Right. Well, I'm thinking of material things and temporal acquisition instead of thinking about... God thinking of how I can be a good Christian in this life and thinking of the things that are really important. I'm spending time and energy obsessing over those things. That's what takes the desire to make sure you can pay your bills and separates it from greed. Right. If you are feeling sexual desire towards your spouse who you have married and taken vows towards, that is not lust. Uh, That is appropriate human sexual conduct because if you act on it, you're not doing anything sinful. Right. If you're thinking... I'm hungry, that's not gluttony. If you're thinking, I'd like to sleep with my wife tonight, that's not lust. If you're thinking, gee, I need $150 more to pay the rent this month, that's not greed. Right. But if you're thinking, well, I've got some, but I could use more, that's avarice. You know, if you're thinking, I'm clearly better than that person, that's pride. Wrath is blind, uncontrolled rage. Wrath is when I want to shoot the person who cuts me off in traffic, not when I see innocent people in Africa suffering and I want to do something about it. Right. I think we're actually kind of on the same thing as I totally agree that it's about the obsession with it. And it's the difference between the temptation and the obsession with it. I, I think once you're actually experiencing something that that is severe enough to be referred to as lust, greed, you know, gluttony, sloth, etc., it has crossed over into sin. The difference between sin and not sin in this particular case is the intensity, the motivation, and the effect, not just the presence of one of these feelings. Right. These are partly emotional, but really all of these sins fundamentally come down to the will. Yeah. What are you willing to do? What? How much of your will are you controlling, etc.? And that's what makes them deadly sins. It's when you say, I no longer, at this moment, want to have that relationship with God. I'm in something else. 
Yeah, it's it's I don't care this is wrong, I want it is pretty much the the threshold that you get to with any of that. And it may not always be that dramatic in the moment, but if you can look back and point at some point where it's like you know on some level that it was wrong and you cross the threshold anyways, that's kind of when it you're definitely in the sin territory with it. Right. And that's why they are the deadly sins is they are specifically dangerous. Yeah, they they can trip you up. These kind of seven motivators and um, conditions of the human heart are kind of the poisonous nutrients that the tree of sin feeds from. Right. And in almost every case, all of the other sins that we describe are variants of these seven fundamental sins. In the same way that all the virtues that people exhibit are reflections and subcategories of the sevenly heavenly, seven heavenly virtues. Or possibly even combinations. Sure. Uh, the, it's hard in some cases to distinguish between one another, and oftentimes they feed into each other for good and for ill. I, like The one thing I, I want to say is I am agreeing that these things are the most easy to impede your relationship with God. I don't know if we're on the same wavelength because I've, I've been raised in my understanding of well, Christianity and things like that. To, to be fair to both you and the listeners, we all do come from slightly different theological backgrounds, so some of this is inevitable. Right. Yes. I think also a lot of times is you guys did say something about giving yourself over to it, which I will concede that is an action. That is something you're doing, and I guess what I'm trying to do is that if someone gets angry, they're not committing this sin. No. I would say they were. Mm. Depending on the anger, it's very possible that they are. If they're getting angry because they're seeing somebody hurt, that's not. But if they're getting angry because somebody snubbed them at school, that's wrath. It's a minor form of wrath, but it is that sin. See, now, I'm going to disagree with you, Grant. If something bad happens to you and that causes you to become angry and you consciously say, no, I'm not going to act on this. I'm going to be merciful and I'm going to turn the other cheek here. Then you have not committed a sin in simply feeling the emotion of anger. I'm sorry. I, I, I was not clear enough there. Yes. What I'm trying to say is experiencing an emotion is not sinful. Yes. Letting that emotion continue once you say, ah, I'm feeling this. Once you decide not to take control of it at that point, and let it feed and let it just sort of stew in yourself if we're talking about wrath, that's where it starts to become a sin. Okay, and I can completely totally agree with that because I've heard it said that, oh, well, if you feel any of this, then you're going to hell and different things like that, and that is something that I don't don't. agree with and don't push forward. And that's why I also don't like the whole thing of deadly sins because you can repent from anything. Yes, that's very true, but they are the most dangerous because they are the, the roots. And I think deadly in this case can indicate the effect on your life and the effect on your relationship with God and other people more than it indicates the effect on your salvation. Right. These things can be incredibly damaging to any relationship that you have with anyone, God included, if they're allowed free reign in your life. Yeah. Now that we've had that out a little bit and kind of explained the, the concept of these seven deadly sins uh, as much as we can. And all of our individual perspectives on them. Um, Peter, do you want to give us our, uh, our scripture? Sure. Our scripture tonight is 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Uh, this is from the New King James Version. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with those, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So tonight we're talking about avarice. Uh, which is a blanket term that encompasses greed and greedy behaviors. Not strictly relating to material goods, but by and large avarice encompasses the acquisition of material goods and behaviors that result from that. Obviously, the biggest example of greed is jealously hoarding wealth, money, material goods, that sort of thing and actively pursuing wealth, especially at the expense of others. And I want to make a distinction in a moment here about that, but a few other avaricious behaviors, accepting bribes, betraying somebody or something, especially for wealth, Judas betraying Christ for 30 pieces of silver, that sort of thing, robbery, simony, which is a specifically Christian sinful behavior, the selling of ecclesiastical office, forgiveness of sins, etc., for money, named after uh, Simon, I believe Simon Peter, is that right? Simon Simon Magus. Magus. Hmm. Okay. 
uh, Simon the Magus, who attempted to buy salvation in the New Testament, and usury, or loan sharking. That's kind of one of the strangely controversial behaviors. Traditionally, Christianity, Judaism, and a lot of other religions have specifically forbidden lending at interest. Whether or not that applies in a modern capitalist stock market is hard to say, but usury in modern terms means excessively high interest rates and loaning at punitive rates. Although it's interesting to note that I was reading somewhere that what's considered usury varies wildly from culture to culture in feudal Japan. Loans weren't considered usurious until the interest rate was something like above 100%. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it, it just varies enormously, kind of depending on the culture. But anyway, greed, like we said, is it's not just a desire for money. We all need money to live. We need some amount of money to live. And in fact, the Bible specifically encourages us to work for money. But greed and avarice is a concern specifically for material things that crowd out our concern for God's wishes and which take our time and energy away from the pursuit of good works and Christian charity. The Bible specifically encourages us to work so that we have something to give to the poor and to support ourselves just with what we have, to have food and clothing, and with these, be content. You'll note that this is not the same as gluttony. They're both a desire for material things in many cases, but gluttony is more the pursuit of sensory enjoyment and hedonism, as opposed to having. Greed and avarice are all about having things and doing things to have more. So, one of the more famous conversations that Jesus had with somebody in the New Testament that's often used kind of in reference to uh, this particular sin is a conversation that he has with a fairly affluent young man in Matthew 19. Matthew 19:16, New International Version. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Uh, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. The young man heard this. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell this to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then the very next two verses, since you stopped there, are when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So, the man in this case had been trying to be virtuous and appeared to be trying to figure out how to get to the next level. He knew that Jesus was going to answer all of this other stuff. Christ references the Ten Commandments here, basically, and some other Old Testament law. And while I think he may have been deluding himself about how well he was keeping the love your neighbor as yourself portion of things, because that's really hard. I think it's important to realize that the context of this is somebody who's basically asking Christ how they can save themselves. Christ kind of pulled the rug from under him. And Christ is basically laying out that it's impossible. You can't do it yourself. You can't self-sanctify. It's that. It's also that Christ is saying your concern with material goods is what's keeping you grounded in this world and what's preventing you from following me. Exactly. This is a rich man. He's going to come to Christ looking like a wealthy man. I believe the, the Love Wins book, Peter, that you recommended to me, Yeah. I believe it actually talks about this in the first or second or third chapter. I'm not sure which. And... Christ can look at this man and say, based on outward appearance alone, this is a wealthy man. He doesn't have the scars and other signs of hard physical labor that poor laborers would have. And of course, this is Christ we're talking about. He knows a lot more about this man than just what's seen. Right. And that's why when this young man says, how do I get into heaven? Christ says, well, have you kept the commandments? You know, have you done these things? And he specifically lists everything except that wealth one. And he says, yes, I've done that. And Christ says, then this is what's holding you back. This is the one. And the man says, I can't do that. Yeah, he goes away kind of dejected. And I thought it was an incredible illustration of 
the problem with greed because getting back to the whole discussion is it's obvious that this is what's grounded this man this man's love of his money is more than his love of god now i am not a biblical literal list and i do not think that god is really saying that in order for everyone to be truly holy you have to sell all your possessions well, and you get into things like the um, parable of the talents and stuff it's i yeah. think god trusts us with what he thinks we can do good with at the time exactly and as with everything in the bible and in christianity in general trying to simplify it to a a simple cut and paste Pithy, thing pithy is phrase not work. is never going to encompass the entirety of our relationship with God or the proper relationship with God. Yeah, Christianity is a complicated religion, and if you try and simplify it too much, you're going to leave some important things out. Yeah. What I was getting at is this is an example of that deadly sin. It's the love of greed and how it's keeping this person from fully pushing forward into a true and holy life. Uh, and I know that this is even actually is somewhat shown in early forms of Dungeons and Dragons where I know you guys did the whole Crusaders episode just last episode and I know that there were rules in an addition that paladins had to tithe certain amounts of what they got mm-hmm. to their church in order to not be greedy. And, and honestly, it works great because D&D is the most greediest of games that it has out there. Their entire motto at one point was, kill more monsters, get more loot. Oh yeah. Like, it is saying that greed is one of the driving forces of this game. You want to get the plus two um, Holy Avenger so you can go and fight more things and then get more stuff, and it is the stuff that'll keep you coming back. Right. But of course... Honestly, for me, that's not what keeps me coming back. And and if you do have that, I, I personally believe it's kind of a, a shallow game if it's all about the loot. Yeah, you know, let's, yeah. Let's, let's dig into that a little bit more because that was definitely one of the things that we wanted to cover. Yeah. So there's a specific type of role-playing that Brandon was referring to, sometimes called the hack-slash-loot game or the Monty Hall game, where... It's basically taken the idea of the Skinner box that you see in modern action RPG PC and video games like Diablo and its variants and put it into a tabletop environment. Now, that's saying it somewhat backwards because the the video games came afterwards. Sure. And for those not familiar with the, uh, the Skinner box, it's a reference to a psychological experiment someone did years and years ago where they determined that regular rewards didn't really do anything for people. And no reward didn't really do anything for people or for animals. But if you have a button you press and randomly you get a reward for doing so, animals and people alike will mash that button constantly and give up everything to do that. It's something we have ingrained in us for some reason and just sit there and pound away on it. And that's what's why you have people sitting there grinding games like World of Warcraft, you know, going, this one particular drop, you know, 1.42% drop rate, got to do it over and over and over. Something about that is addictive. What I would say is it's likely that the next shot could pay out. Yeah. It's, if you know that it's always going to pay out, but then it suddenly stops paying out, well, then you know it's broken. Right. If it's never going to pay out, well, then why bother with it? Then it's ineffective. But if it might pay out, well, then, well, this next one, that's why people buy lottery tickets. It's that, well, the lottery tickets are another thing that we can get into with, uh, with greed here, but the Skinner box is almost kind of like an exploitation or a corruption of the persistence instincts. It's dangling something along that kind of consumes all of the emotional capital of the person or creature that's caught in it, I guess, and kind of conditions them to obsess over one thing. If that starts to sound a little bit like the earlier parts of this episode, that's not a coincidence. That's basically the effect that constant moving goalposts and sometimes not even very clearly defined want more, want more, want more can have on a person. It becomes this all-encompassing quest for, well, maybe if I do this thing, it'll spit some gold out this time. And that's one of the ways that avarice can get deadly to people, is that it may not even wind up hurting anybody else, but it it steals so much potential from the person that's suffering from that particular deadly sin that it makes them far less effective in more important things than they would otherwise be. Right. It saps not just money, but also your mental energy and your effort and time that could and should be spent on something better. We've talked a whole lot about what 
greed is. And we've kind of really nailed that down, I would say. I mean, it's not like greed is a alien concept to a lot of people. But how do we want to say that this could be useful or something to watch out for in your role-playing game? Yeah, in that case, we need to look at it both in-game and out-of-game. Yeah. And how it affects not just characters, but also players. So let's start with the out-of-game stuff and cap off with the in-game, because the out-of-game stuff can really be divisive to a gaming group. Yes, and it's a little depressing. Yeah, so the most obvious and humorous example is the stereotypical bribe the game master, counting <sighs> yeah. on the, the GM's greed that, you know, if, if he gets enough free pizza or cool dice or splat books from his players that he will somehow turn around and react more favorably in game you know push the story in a direction that they want to go and that sort of thing or give them the particular magic item they're angling for or something like that yeah uh, there's always stories of that, and I think I knew a GM like that. This is interesting in that greed within the game is causing somebody to try and exploit greed outside of the game. So you get twice as much greed for the price of one. Yeah, which is not a good combination. I think that it's not necessarily unique, because I think the other next big thing would be players stealing from other players. Because I've seen that in one of the first games I ran. Someone played a rogue, they scouted out every single room ahead of time, and they pocketed every single item that they could find. Right, so you're talking about characters stealing from characters here, and essentially players stealing from players, players through the, the characters. Yeah, and it kind of bridges both, because it's both in-game and out-of-game. It's you stealing from something that's going to help you play the actual game, and in the story world, it's a character stealing from another character, basically. Right, and certainly ruining other people's enjoyment of it. Yes, and it ended with me basically kind of having the other players hog-tie the rogue down and check his pockets. (laughs) Yep. The rogue didn't like that. No, not terribly much. This can, Uh, um... This can also manifest in people cheating, writing additional stuff on their character sheets because they want it, and trying to get passed on other people's poor memory and stuff. Yeah, even to the point of, and this is something I admit I've done a couple of times back when I was younger and stupider, saying, well, I probably would have had this, and, oh, well, let me just kind of, you know, I, I probably have something like this, and I'll just take the cost out of it now, and... Oh, yeah, I got it. Yeah. I got this covered. That leads to the slippery slope of, well, I probably would have been able to get it discounted from this NPC, so I'm actually going to charge myself less for it than it says. No, 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 no. I never did any of that. But, yeah, that is a that is a risk, and it's silly, and it's dangerous, and it's doubly dangerous and doubly silly because you're doing it for imaginary goods. But it's the same instinct. Uh, it's this idea that, well, of course I've got this. and uh, Let me just do this. And some of that ties into pride. Oh, look, I can do this now. Aren't I awesome? We've talked a lot about the material side of greed in games, but you were mentioning earlier, greed doesn't necessarily have to be material, and it could be more for power. So that leads us also into the power gamer, the dude who wants the feat that is just going to be better, you know, the more Mm -hmm. broken character. Well, I'm not sure of that, because that... I'm not sure if that's pride... I think it's a, I think it's there. a combination of pride and greed. Yeah, I, what I'm wondering is, avarice is specifically material. It's material goods and behaviors that ah, interact. Because I could have sworn goods. you said it was. I may have misspoken. I may All right. have misspoken there. But it's an interesting distinction to make: is somebody who's power gaming because they want all the stuff. We're talking about avarice there. If we're talking about somebody who's power gaming because they want to be the center of attention... That's pride. That's pride that we're talking about there. And I think what you're talking about there is more of a prideful thing of, look how awesome I am. Because it's not just, you know, hey, I've got a cool character. It's, aren't I cool because I have a cool character. And by the way, no, gentlemen, that does not work. That does not get the ladies. (laughs) However much I did the ladies voice right there. Now, obviously... In-game, there's avarice there. It can lead to, some, I think, some fairly dangerous behaviors for players, taking characters who might otherwise help them encourage, help players encourage good habits and good thinking and turning that into, well, nobody will miss this particular item. Oh, no one will mind if I just, you know, knock this guy out and take his stuff and quickly it devolves into loot and pillage. Yeah. Um, which is certainly not something you want to encouraged by any stretch of the imagination. And it can Um, get really insidious when it's like, okay, we thought this particular group was a threat. It's clear that they aren't, but they have stuff we really want, 
and suddenly you go all Spanish conquistador and be like, well, we would have had no way of knowing that they weren't actually a threat, so let's continue to treat them like a threat and claim the spoils of war. Right, we're here anyway, we brought all our stuff, yeah. um, we don't want to go back empty-handed, that's a common excuse right there. Yeah. Yeah, that's where it starts getting dangerous. Because these are things that are inherent to everyone, these are, in effect, things that do motivate people, and that is what is scary about them. But it also is what most games are around. Like, uh, who hasn't seen a role-playing game where the sole motivation is we are in search of this certain artifact for some reason that is not necessarily the best. Or this one guy is going out because he wants the certain awesome sword. Like, it's something that motivates characters. Like, pride motivates characters. See, I'm going to disagree there. I I think, and this may just be my own personal experience, but it seems like most of the time when you've got characters out searching for an artifact or something, it's the MacGuffin that you need to continue the story it's it's the the one thing that will stop the rampaging monster that's you know wrecking the countryside it's the the cure for the disease that's afflicting the king it's well, yes. you know it's the holy grail it's not you know it's yes, not that the, exists it's not the city of gold i guess yes that exists but there are people who are out there for their plus five holy avenger or their vorpal sword Sure, or there, sure. you know, and that—that's what I'm talking about. It's and you know, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that you keep bringing up the Holy Avenger because that's typically an item for characters of uncommon virtue that's given as a reward for being virtuous. Right. Unfortunately, it's often a reward for the guy playing the paladin. Yeah. The reason why I keep bringing it up is because it is the quote-unquote best sword in the game. I've heard it on a whole bunch of other different sources, is if you give your paladin the Holy Avenger, there's nothing balanced against it. And so, a lot of people who are playing that kind of character are not being motivated by a actual virtue, they're being motivated by kind of greed, because they want the awesome sword. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the Holy Avenger is a nice sword, but I mean, I would actually argue that a... Uh... If we're going to talk about 3rd edition D&D, a plus 5 sword with 2d6 of sonic damage would probably be even more effective. Oh yeah, it's much more It fun. works on golems, it's not restricted to evil opponents, it'll work equally well for any member of the party if one of you gets incapacitated. Yeah, if you want me to get really twinky on magic item design, I can do that. Yeah, me too. Right. <laughs> I'm the guy who helped build characters that do several million d6 points of damage around. You were that okay. guy? It's fun. I'm that guy. I'm the bard. That's our problem. <laughs> to me, yeah, there is some greed in my characters that have motivated them, and I know that there is a time in one of my stories where my character saw a really big bag of money and took it because, hey, I could get away with it. Yeah. I was the especially grim paladin who actually lit fire to a uh, valuable thing because it was evil and needed to be cleansed and kept the rest of the party from putting it out until it was ashes. I don't know that I've (laughs) played a character who's ever been really motivated by greed or any desire for wealth per se. I've played a game where we played as sort of magical mercenaries slash troubleshooters. This was a weird D&D game. It was fun, but honestly kind of a loose justification for us going around doing things, since all of our money went into our equipment, which we used to get money for more equipment. And You were trapped deep within the Skinner box. The vicious circle continued. Oh yeah, but I don't have a problem with a character who is driven by greed initially, or who is tempted by greed at some point during the character development process, and having them resist that temptation or succumb to that temptation is appropriate for the story and what's interesting. Greed is a powerful motivator. All of the the sins that we're going to talk about here, just as all the virtues that we're going to talk about here, are all powerful motivators. I think it's okay to use that, certainly, as one of your character motivations for a player character, and I think it's fun to throw that out there as a GM to say, Look what you could get. There's a big shiny sack of gold, or there's a cred stick full of Nuyen, if you just do this one little thing. Well, and I think one of the coolest things that can be done with that kind of a character, if you're looking for the redemption story, is the person is forced to make a decision between doing the right thing and doing the profitable thing Mm -hmm. in a really dramatic way. Like, hey, 
I'm going to pay you this, and you're going to leave and not warn the rest of your party. You're not going to worry about what happens to them, but you're going to be okay, and you're going to be set for life. Yeah. And the person thinks about it for a while, because they are greedy after all, and ultimately rejects it, goes back, warns the party, and they, they deal with the threat. Sure. Or they don't. Or they don't, yeah. Yeah, and... But the classic but scene But that's of, the classic moment of redemption there, is yeah. I had everything that I wanted within my grasp, and I realized there was something more important. Yeah. True. It's a little cliched, but it's still very powerful when it's done right. I'll tell you one thing that actually would be a lot of fun. A character who has, as their backstory they were a thief or did something where they had taken a lot of something in some way. They had gained a lot of money somehow, whether through insider trading or outright thievery or something like that. And they have gotten better, uh, which makes it sound like a medical condition, but they've seen the light. And one of their goals as a character is to repay that whether through action or simply by giving some of that money back. I can't count the number of news stories I've seen where somebody, back in 1962, I stole this, and I'm finally at a point where I can admit it and give that money back, or give that money back in, you know, modern dollars and return the the thing that I stole. I swear I see, like, one or two of the news stories like that a week. Really? You live in a much more optimistic part of the country than I do, then, if that's making your local news. No, I read FARC.com. Ah, okay, gotcha. I've seen those somewhat commonly, and I think it'd be an interesting character to play. Somebody who's going around, I'm going to say adventuring is engaged in the sort of activities characters engage in, but has, as a motivating force, do right by the people I hurt in the past, to try and make up for that. Isn't that getting more into charity than greed? Absolutely. Well, it is, but I think we're talking about how greed shapes characters. We talk about a lot of this stuff as stuff that happens in-game. It'd be interesting to have something like that that happens before the game starts. Pre-game. Yeah, pre-game. Here's the character background. Now what? Yes, and I think that's a great thing to hit in charity, but what I think we should probably hit here is, like, as you mentioned, greed exists. Mm -hmm. I know, personally, being a role player, I can't control the player next to me. Even as a GM, I can't control what my players do. I had in my game a issue where my players ended up stealing a guy's wallet. Just yeah, that in-game or out-of-game? That was in-game. Okay, just making sure. Yeah. Because out-of-game greed can also manifest in some fairly significant and problematic ways. Yeah, yeah, they were starting to take the guy's shoes and everything like that, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So what I want to do is, how can we maybe try to get some advice on how to control greed and not let it run rampant? Because greed will likely exist because I can't stop my players from being greedy. Well, I think probably the best way to do it as a GM is just to make sure that there's consequences. A lot of the time in role-playing, greed is seen as such a normal thing and as an intrinsic part of the system that nobody ever really thinks to be like, you know, some of these people that you took this stuff from might want it back or might be angry that they've lost it. Right. And it, they may not always manifest that very justified anger by attempting to kill you. They may summon the authorities. They may do something that makes life hard for you politically or in some other aspect inside the story of the game. I think probably the thing to stay away from is the idea that the only consequences that can exist in a role-playing game, particularly an action-oriented one like D&D, are violence. Player characters generally tend to be extremely formidable, and they will usually turn the tables on anything that's sent after them. Without going for something like ridiculously, arbitrarily powerful, it's usually hard to overwhelm a well-coordinated, crafty group of four more minds than your own at a table. True. So what you are you suggesting is, like, the players go in and in classical D&D fashion, they raid a dungeon and clear out all the loot, and then they get back into town, and then all of a sudden, this warren of kobolds or whatever it is are going into town and demanding their stuff back from the, the no I, I'm, that I'm not talking about that i'm talking about more in like um although that certainly would make for an interesting scenario especially if they didn't do what player characters often do and be absolutely thorough and kill every living thing in the dungeon yeah well, 
it very well could have been that they killed everything in the dungeon and then the hunting party that was out came back and they just tracked these people back to town. Sure. And sure, that's a possibility, but I think more interesting is when you start getting into more intrigue or political type of games and they do something that greatly benefits them and screws somebody else in power and that person remembers it. It doesn't even have to be something like that. Let's say we're playing inspectors. You know, we're paranormal investigators trying to take care of, essentially, a paranormal pest control problem. It's not a kill-and-loot-elf-the-bodies kind of game. It's Ghostbusters and franchising. But if somebody's got a, a ghost in their house, if it's a nice house, and you've got a character who's like, well, you know, it's in my character to slip some of the silver into my pocket, how do you deal with that? One of the obvious answers is, hmm, all of my silver's missing, let me call the police. Who was in the house, ma'am? Well, we had the local inspectors franchise in the house, Oh, look, now your franchise is shut down because one of your characters committed a robbery. Or, at the very least, that particular character is in jail. Right. Your reputation is trashed. You're still in business, but where do you go from here? Well, what I would say is try not to go that nuclear as that there is no way back, because that's a good way to kill a game if there's nothing they can do. But instead of it be like, okay, well, this guy's under investigation, and now you have to do something to work and prove that this isn't going to happen again. Because it's like, oh, well, you stole something. Well, your entire franchise is shut down, and oh, everyone sure, sure. spits on you, and everyone thinks that you're a terrible person. See, and that's I, just a... I disagree that it has to go quite that far. And I mean, certainly real businesses can come back from some bad customer incidents. But I think what we described earlier, okay, one of your guys is in jail, so that player maybe has to make a new character who's not going to get along as well with the rest of the team. Maybe there's some management shifts or something, so the person who is in charge isn't anymore. You know, it can be seriously disruptive without being game-ending. Right. And we're talking about consequences here. How do we keep players from being greedy in a game? And I think having that sort of result is part of that process. Now, I think in-character consequences are perfectly valid. I think it's okay for a GM out of character to say, stop. Think about what you're doing here for a second. You're going to do what now? This is not healthy what you're doing. Because we're talking player to player. The whole point of playing these games is to have fun. And what we're saying on this podcast is they have other uses. They're one of the ways in which we can improve ourselves and be better Christians through Christian fellowship and a mutually Christian activity. Well, well, the other thing that I want to say is role-playing games also allow us to explore things that tempt us, that make right. us human, that make us mortal in a very safe way that we can see our faults and we can see what bad things that greed lead to. I'm going to get into a gaming story, but I play mm. uh, Star Wars The Old Republic. I play Empire Side. I have a Sith, and I was playing her... She was completely choosing every single decision that was light side because I wanted to make her good. And there came this situation where I got presented with an option of this other Sith had come to this planet and he was in search of a weapon that was supposed to be really powerful and I kind of wanted it. And so I took a dark side option for it and the weapon ended up being just a nothing thing. But the consequence of it was there was an actual NPC in that game that got really upset with me that I had to then strike down and it was really really traumatizing for me and and my character and I realized my character's never right. going to do anything bad again like she'd been incredibly good up until that point she made one bad decision and all this terrible stuff happened to it and it was a very personally moving thing that I'm like <gasps> yeah. well I think no! we need to be careful here to distinguish between player greed and player character greed because if I'm sitting here playing a character and say, okay, I know it's wrong, but I think my character would do this at this point, and that's going to have consequences. At that point, as the GM, I'd say, okay, let, you know, let's let that happen. If the player is being selfish, however, and being greedy and just saying, oh, I'm just going to take this, if it's the player's greed as opposed to the player character's greed, I think it's okay for the GM to step in at that point and say, whoa, hang on, stop. I'm going to disagree with you there on a little bit, saying that you should let the characters do what they want and have what they will, because 
then why not just write a story? I'm saying the, the GM can But what I'm trying point. to say is that player greed can be expressed through the character. There's a whole bunch of reasons why I did something. It wasn't because I thought my character would do it, but kind of because I thought, oh, I kind of want that, and so I skewed my character to go there and be that greedy. Sometimes we're not going to be as perfect as be able to create a separation from our character. Well, I know exactly perfectly how to play this character. And importance I want to draw out of that is, even with that happening, you can still provide consequences like Peter said earlier on in the episode is that the best way to deal with greed and probably the best way to deal with most any of these things is going to be apply consequences to it. Yeah. You sound unconvinced, Grant. Do you have some counter thoughts here? I am unconvinced. Specifically, I, I am not convinced that you as the GM have to just say, okay, go with it. If the appropriate response to help someone out is to say, okay, stop, let just... You're going down... You're letting your greed step in here. Well, and those consequences can come from other player characters, too. Somebody doing something, you know, avaricious and one of the other player characters being like, what happened to you, man? You were never like this before. Can be just as effective as anything that the GM could drop on you after the fact. Sure. I guess what I'm saying is, let's not limit the responses available to a situation like this to in-character, in-game responses. I think the thing that we're kind of getting at is that this is a measure of degrees. A small little greedy thing happening in there. Someone taking a coin or a gem that they see out in the open does not really warrant us stopping the game and having an out-of-game conversation go, well, are you really sure you need to take that? Because I would Unless say it becomes habitual. I'm talking about degrees. I'm talking about a single instance at this one point. If it's just a single instance of it, it doesn't have to do it. If the character is continually doing it, well, then it's big, and then it requires a, hey, dude, why don't you stop stealing everything? Because an out-of-game conversation is a really big thing and should be used for, I feel, really, really big problems that have the pro process of derailing campaigns. And see, I have to disagree with you on that point, because I think that's going to depend entirely on the specific people involved. I right. have been involved in gaming groups where an out-of-game conversation was seen as a much less, quote-unquote, nuclear option than having the players react in-game and be like, hey, um... No, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're playing Fiasco or something like that, trying to arrange things out of character, that all happens out of character very quickly, and it's fine. Whereas in-character stuff, uh, that's that's important. Yeah. That's what's happening. Everything else is just planning. I have been in games where I really wish we had out-of-character discussions and out-of-game discussions, all right, we need to fix this. I don't like the direction this is going. Well, and that's one of the places where I think a lot of some of the newer, more story-driven role-playing games excel and where some of the older, more simulationist-type ones tend to struggle is with the newer ones like you're describing, like Inspectors or Fiasco or something, is it really is all about the story. There's no other things to muddy the water. Like, I really want this loot for my character, like you see in D&D. Yeah. So that kind of out-of-character discussion is a lot more organic, and it's a lot more useful, mm -hmm. I think, than it is in a kind of a traditional RPG sure. setting. And one of the fun things about Inspectors, Inspectors features a confessional, where it's the reality TV show thing where action's happening, and then cut to green-screened background, a guy in chair saying, so this is what I was thinking at the time, kind of acting it out, cutting to the thoughts of a character at that time. Now, the fun part about this is in Inspectors is this is where a player gets to put their character into the confessional and foreshadow as much as they want and define as much of the plot as they want to. And one thing you could do as the GM in something like this is find a way to force the player character into the confessional to talk about that. Using that as a way to resolve or explain a situation and build up some character development... Yeah, I, I, you know, I just, I saw that silver sitting there and, you know, I'm, I'm late on rent this month and the boss doesn't pay me enough. I just, I had to do it. That's fine. I don't know how you do it because as much as I love inspectors, I have yet to actually play it. You know, finding a way to do that or suggesting that they go into the confessional or something like that might be a way to bring that to the forefront. And if they can't really explain it, oh, well, okay. maybe that's a problem. Yes, I completely, totally agree with that as something to do in a role-playing game to help get your point across and help create group cohesion and everyone going towards the same point. I've role-played with people who absolutely 
hated out of game and metagame and thought it was the most evil thing in the world. And I, I don't agree with that at all. I think you it does some very brilliant things can happen when you have discussions in the metagame. What I meant by the nuclear option is the GM saying, no, your player character can't act like that. No, you can't do this. No, you shouldn't do that. Right. Well, I don't know that that's what I was even trying to indicate. It's not, no, you can't do this. Just realize that there will be consequences okay. if you do. Yes. There will be consequences if you do. And I think it's important for us as Christians to not be thinking purely about the game when we're running a game or playing in a game. We're thinking about the other people at the table because it's the other people that are the important yes. thing. There. And if somebody's doing something and starting to exhibit some sort of greedy behavior, or any of these others, while we're certainly taught not to judge, and we're certainly taught to take the plank out of our own eye before we start digging around in other people's eyes for specs, a bit of friendly advice or a word of caution or, whoa, you know, hold on, think about what you're doing here for a second, may help head off a lot of problems and help that person out. And that's kind of what I've been trying to say. Yeah, I've been kind of trying to to take that tack as well. Yeah, you this is a way to head things off at the pass and maybe just put the brakes on something that could become destructive. I'm also coming more from the viewpoint of the reason sin is so tempting is because it's instant gratification. These virtues that we're going to talk about in the next episode are not instant gratification, really. A lot of times it's you, you don't get rewards from them immediately, but you get better rewards later. And that is something right. to... <laughs> examine and be like yes this happens but in the end greed will lead to your downfall it may be you get it right now but get it right now is not the easy answer like in dresden they say in the book of the dresden files game that evil powers are always willing to give you power but their power is going to cost you a whole lot more in the end than a good person which will give you less power or may not even give you power but in the end it'll lead you to a better path. Right. And I think that's a perfect segue into greedy antagonists, don't you guys? I do. Peter, go ahead and give us something to One of the best that. and most kind of stereotypically greedy antagonists is actually the greedy land baron. The guy who's got a bunch of hired guns and he wants all the land for himself. And he's willing to do whatever he needs to so he can get all the land. Or, you know, all of the cattle. You know, he'll have people out there covering up brands or that sort of thing. Sure, sure. And this basic archetype works fine in fantasy settings, too. You'll have a greedy nobleman of some kind, or just a group of bandits can also work. The highwayman. Yeah, we're not talking about Robin Hood and his crew here, because they were using theft as kind of a tool against tyrannical powers. Right, it was a, a form of social justice in some ways. Yeah. They were actually exhibiting charity. They were not keeping their wealth. Right. They were giving it away. Yeah. It was robbed from the rich to give to the poor. Well, and it wasn't even just the rich, because uh, Robin himself, in some of the versions anyways, was a nobleman and was fairly affluent. It was more, take from the people who have gotten their wealth through predatory means and right that wrong by giving it back. Right. In some versions of the story that I've heard, um, specifically Ivanhoe and the like, he's stealing from wealthy churchmen and Norman nobles, but never from good honest English thanes and that sort of thing. You know, there's an NPC I created for an Eberron game that never really got terribly far. By the way, listeners, remember, this is the long campaign guy, which probably means it ran for three and a half years. <laughs> no, 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 no. It only ran for a couple of months. But I was trying to run a 4th edition Eberron game, and I had probably the best NPC I've ever invented was a merchant who was a member of an organization in Ebron called the Orum, which is essentially the Bilderberg group of conspiracy theory lore, wealthy people trying to run the world from behind the scenes. The Orum, sort of the military-industrial complex of Ebron. One of their main goals, or at least one of the potential main goals for the Orum, was restarting the massive world war that had torn apart the, uh, the setting because they were making money off of it, never mind the amount of damage it did. And this guy was sort of doing some of that, importing drugs, dealing drugs, that sort of thing, through some intermediaries. And the NPCs had basically wrecked one of his drug production operations, and he managed to hire the NPCs to clean out more of this corruption that was ruining his good name, by which he actually meant 
remove some rivals that I know are also in this business. <laughs> so at, right there at the end, before the game collapsed, they had jetted off to the big city to do some work for this guy. Quote, clean out some of the corruption in his organization. Which is a wonderful euphemism for consolidate my power. Yes, especially when you manage to convince people that, oh no, these guys who claim they don't know me, yeah, they're part of my organization too, and I, I'm glad they're dead. Greed as a motivating force for antagonists, I think, can be a lot of fun. It's not maybe as emotional... It doesn't get to deep philosophical differences between people, but it's a very human motivation. And it works, the simple lust for wealth can in some ways be a refreshing antagonist. NPCs who want power, who want to serve some terrible, evil deity or obtain power in some way, and sometimes just, this guy's really greedy and is robbing banks. You know. Yeah, when you're used to dealing with people that want to like make, watch the whole world die screaming every week, it's sometimes refreshing to go up against somebody who just really, really wants to steal a bunch of money and live like a king somewhere. Yeah, it's a mundane sort of evil, especially in a, in a high fantasy game where these deep philosophical questions of reality factor in. Something like that is maybe something you want to bring in just to ground your players and ground your characters a bit. And frankly, greed can be kind of a funny motivation, too. I mean, how many how many greedy, like, cartoon villains have you seen? Boss Hog, what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Scrooge McDuck, even. You know, I've always thought Scrooge McDuck could have really been a villain in that whole series. Yeah. He could have been, but it was odd because he was incredibly greedy, but he was the protagonist. Yeah. I'm, I've never been entirely convinced he was really the protagonist, given everything else that happened. Like, he may have been the mastermind behind the whole thing. It's some twisted plan. At any rate... I'd never liked Scrooge McDuck, <laughs> But if you're used to going up against Sauron or Cthulhu, Neil McCauley, uh, Robert De Niro's character from Heat, is probably a refreshing change. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think that's something pleasant to use. And um, it's also a weakness that characters can exploit in an antagonist. Oh, yeah. It's a great way to lay traps for a specific kind of villain. Oh, yeah, sure, this will be incredibly profitable. No, it won't be traceable. There's a great saying in both law enforcement and criminal communities, it's impossible to con an honest man. Right. I don't know. There's a lot of fun you can have with that. I don't watch a lot of TV, but uh, White Collar kind of plays with that a lot. Oh, yeah. You have a former con man who's using some of that talent to catch people in their own cons. Leverage does that a lot, too. Yeah, I was yeah. about to bring up Leverage, because in the very first episode... Careful, goes, don't spoil it. <laughs> the line is, there's entirely too much money to steal, because these guys are crooks. And the guy goes, you're not supposed to steal it. You're the good guys. You're supposed to give it back. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that idea, I think, it's a fun thing to play with. And it's not just antagonists that are motivated by money. Money makes the world go round, as they say. I don't think it's something that maybe you should have your characters do all the time, but appealing to other NPCs' sense of greed in order to further the plot or further your character's goals or something like that is... It's something that's going to happen sometimes. Well, like, yeah, greed has been a motivator for a whole different things. Like, I was thinking about Disney, the Frog Princess. The main bad guys in that were really motivated by greed because they were stealing the life of the rich, powerful prince and turning him into a frog. Yeah, I've and... not seen that one yet. Oh, it's good. I've heard it's good. <laughs> the just... bad guy is amazingly Listen, awesome. Listen, all the Disney movies are on tap, all right? I just, I want to watch them with a three-year-old. Y you know, that's true. You are going to be having a, a little kid around to use as, like, the perfect justification for watching all the children's movies you ever want to see oh, yeah. for, like, the next six years. And by the time that one's getting too old, you'll probably have another one. So it'll... Yep. <laughs> No, it's going to be fun. And I have broken Grant. Okay. No, no, no. It's, it's going to be good. I'm actually not worried about watching all the kids' movies. The one thing that worries me slightly is small children have of watching the same movie over and over and over and over and over. I was going over. to say, watching the same children's movie 400 times in one evening? Yeah. And listen, I did it, and it's going to happen, and that's... They say patience is a virtue for a reason. That's part of <laughs> part of my training, as it were. But that's something I I fear I'm well, going to struggle keep with. keep in mind, Grant, the whole second screen phenomenon exists for a reason these days. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's sure, true. sweetie. I'm, I'm watching this with yeah, you as I play this game on my iPad. No, see, that's, <laughs> that's not good parenting. 
that's not the kind of relationship I want to have with my kids. Uh, let, letting your child watch the same movie four times in a row probably isn't the greatest parenting either in a lot of cases. Uh, well, it depends on the movie. True, yeah. No, we'll wear out the DVD player. Let's watch this other one. Yeah, hopefully by the time my kid's six, she'll know enough that daddy... DVDs don't wear out. They're purely optical. That's why you say the player. I'm so proud. I'm so screwed. Yes. A man can dream, all right? (sighs) Anyway. There's one combination of in-game and out-of-game and players and player characters. The one part of that matrix we haven't really touched on is greed affecting people out-of-game directly. Obviously, if you've got something like that going on, you've got bigger problems. You know, players stealing from other players, something like that. I almost don't even want to talk about that here because you've gotten away from gaming and at that point are dealing with purely human relationships, but try not to let things get to that point. Stealing is obviously a pretty dramatic one. Greed takes a lot of forms, and greed can lead to other things. As with all of these, try not to let things go that far. You're there at the table to have fun and make friends and maintain friendships and come together in fellowship. And any of these sins running riot will jeopardize all of that. Yeah. So try and nip it in the bud if you see it. Yeah, and I don't know that we have a lot to say on that point, but I wanted to at least throw that out there. Just be wary of it and be careful with it and get to it early. And on that note... I think we can close this one. Brandon, thanks for joining us on this. Yeah, it's good having a third perspective. I hope the difference of my third perspective has not put you off having me back. No, no. In fact, I think it probably is more likely that you'll be on in the future because of it. You disgust me, sir. Be gone with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fine. I was bored anyway. Oh, wait, no. Wait, no, he's got good points and he's editing. Sir, yeah, stay! Yeah. Wait, 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 come <laughs> yeah. back, come back, come back! Push to issue any retraction to my most impetuous words. There's yes. my monocle. monocle. <laughs> Why do we both go straight to monocle? I don't know. Good night, everybody. Good night, <laughs> folks. See ya. This has been a production of Saving the Game, copyright 2012. This podcast may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial non-derivative license, provided that credit is given to savingthegamepodcast.org. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. For past episodes, podcast news from our hosts, or to connect with us, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.